I admit to you that one of the greatest challenges to the work I get to do, which is a, a wonderful work, and I love what I do, is that my way of bringing a message on Sunday morning is to speak from my own experience as it intersects with the biblical text. I do lots of work during the week. I read the text. I read the background materials. I read commentaries and scholars' thoughts on it. And I seek the places from which I can speak. This week's Beatitude is the first of the eight, and it's the last uh, of the eight. It's the first of the eight that I feel unqualified to speak about. In my entire 60 years of life, I have never once experienced persecution. I have not been persecuted for anything I thought or believed anywhere. Uh, I've had difference of opinion with people, but no one went out of their way to oppress me for those beliefs uh, or for the way I looked. Uh, my skin color, my ethnicity, my nation of origin, any of those kinds of things. Uh, I have not experienced persecution. So during the week, I did what I do naturally. I tried to intellectualize the biblical text. What can I say intellectually about persecution for being right? What can I say about it intellectually? Because my safe space is to retreat into my brain, for me. Now, maybe for you, it's your gut, or maybe it's your emotions, but for me, it's my brain. My brain has not yet failed me, and so it's a good place to, to hide. And so I hid there until first thing this morning. I had lots of good intellectual material to lay it on the table for you about the Greek and Hebrew words for righteousness and persecution. Um, but I'm not going there. Because this morning as I sat with the text for the last time, it became clear to me that I could speak from the experience of being with people who have been persecuted. Not people who were them, not myself as a persecuted person, but having spent time with people from a variety of places and walks of life who have experienced persecution, uh, who have been outside. So let me read to you. Of course, I put away my glasses. That's the, it's the only thing I really need them for is to read. But then when it comes time to read and you have them in your pocket, I don't do much good, just tell you. It's from Matthew uh, chapter 5. That's where the entire Sermon on the Mount is, 5, 6, and 7. Uh, but this is verse 10. How blessed are those who have suffered persecution for the cause of right. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, I want to make a couple of remarks that are intellectual in nature, some observations that I think may be helpful for you to see. The first and the last uh, of the Beatitudes, the first one, how, how blessed are those who know they are poor or the poor in spirit, as some translations say. Uh, 
Both of them say, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both of them say that. The first and the last Beatitudes say theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what's interesting is the middle six all speak about they shall have something in the future. But for those who know that they are poor and those who are persecuted for the sake of right, theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. It's the present tense. It's not some future dance that we get to do in the sky, in some heaven. It is right now. It belongs to us, to those who know that they are poor, and it also belongs to those who are persecuted for the sake of right. So, having said that, where do we go with this text? So, in my lifetime, I have gotten to listen to the stories of others, a variety of them. And it's, it's for people who are marginalized by their economic situation or marginalized because of uh, the place they come from or marginalized because of the color of their skin or the religion they have. And if you want to be a marginalized Christian, you know, you could move to Iran or Iraq and discover how challenging it would be for you in a predominantly Muslim country to be uh, Christian in the same way that our Muslim siblings discover, and Jewish siblings, quite frankly, how hard it is to live in a predominantly what we've defined as Christian culture. It's, it would be hard. We could experience persecution there. But I haven't been to those places. In my life, I've been fortunate to travel to several locations, though, where I met people who had experienced what persecution was. The first time was in the 80s, and I went, uh, I went to uh, West Africa, to Ghana. And I spent about four and a half weeks. I always round it up to six. I don't know how I can round it up to six. Six is not four and a half. I spent four and a half weeks, uh, first in Accra, learning from my African siblings about evangelism and then going out and preaching, uh, being invited to preach in a variety of settings. Uh, I was always welcomed. And yet, um, I was always welcomed and made to feel at home in everyone's house, in all the places I went. Uh, and there were places and towns I went to when some of the younger folks in town, anyone under 15, had never seen a white person before. Uh, but rather than treat me with distrust or ugliness, I was welcomed with great hospitality. And I would listen to the stories of people who, uh, especially the older folks in the village, in the places I stayed, who would share with me what it was like when Ghana was a colonial location, when whites were still in charge and um, why the infrastructure didn't work. Now, of course, I was 20-something. I didn't know anything. So I listened to the stories and didn't appreciate them as much as I might have otherwise. In the 90s, um, as a part of my seminary education, 
uh, my final piece of a seminary education, even after I'd graduated, I went for a week to El Salvador. Now, if you don't know anything about El Salvador, um, uh, you've missed out. It's in Central America. But there has been, over time, a lot of violence. And there was a lot of violence in the 80s in particular that culminated. Part of the reason I was so attracted to go was because of, of a person who struck. If I could choose today at 60, and we don't choose patron saints. At 60, if I could choose a patron saint, it would be Oscar Romero, uh, who is now a saint. But at the time, he wasn't a saint. He had simply been killed because he spoke out on behalf of those who were being persecuted, who were disappearing in the night, the voiceless, people who would just go missing and never return. Their families never knew what happened to them. And he spoke out, and the rulers finally said, we're tired of him speaking out for these people that we're making disappear. Let's make him disappear. And so they killed him uh, while he was saying mass. Archbishop Oscar Romero was saying mass when he was shot and killed. Um, and when I was there, it was an experience of listening to the people, because in the early 90s, there were lots of people who had lived under the oppression of the regime uh, that had killed, um, that had killed Oscar Romero. And talking about being locked, dragged out of the street in the middle of the day uh, and disappearing into prisons and not knowing where they were, not knowing where they, whether they were going to live or die or ever be released, having themselves tortured and other kinds of things, that's oppression. And Oscar Romero was a voice for that. And it cost him everything. It cost him everything. But if you read his writings, and my favorite book of his is called The Violence of Love, and it's translated into English. If you read his writings, he never loses heart. And if you read between the lines, his love was such that he lived. He lived and understood what it was. The kingdom of heaven is his when he was in every moment with people. Fast forward again. I went back to Africa in the early 2000s. I went to Mozambique, and I spent some time there. And part of being able to spend time in Mozambique was a, another mission opportunity to be there. Went to a tiny village where everyone in that tiny village walked at least 15 kilometers to school every day and back home again. So the United Methodist Church was partnering with the local community to build a school in town. Uh, and where some of us remember a time when we hated going to school, uh, I hated it so much that sometimes my mother, when I was in high school, had terrible time waking me up uh, to go to school. Um, but everyone in the village was excited that they would have education, that they would have it right there in town. And not only during the day for their children, but at night for the adults. 
they had experienced persecution. We spent time talking to them because what was interesting is the last thing the colonial powers did before they left Mozambique and Portugal was the colonial power that was in Mozambique. The last thing they did was destroy all the infrastructure, all the water tanks, all the plumbing, uh, some of the roads and a lot of the electrical lines was the last thing they did, the last gift they gave to the folks, you know, that they had ruled over for so long was to destroy what mattered to the people they were leaving there. The ones that had been there and their ancestors had grown up there. And yet, all I received as a white Western guy was welcome, an invitation. If you saw the faces of the people I spent time with there, you would know that the kingdom of heaven was theirs. And still is, I'm sure. But that was 20 years ago. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Because I don't understand how it is that in our most persecuted states, for people who are persecuted, knowing that someone, the ultimate someone of the universe is on their side, is enough oftentimes to offer hope where there is no hope. Now, as I listened to the stories and as I walked with the folks, my life was changed. My life was changed. Not so much because I knew what it was to be persecuted, but because I was able to share with and appreciate the willingness of another to share their struggles because that's what Christian community is about. Our sense of connection is to help each other carry the heaviness that living here sometimes causes us to carry. Now, lest you think that the only place I've found oppression and persecution is outside the United States, I've seen plenty of it here. I have seen it happen on the streets you know, I, I watched the tape that everyone else watched of George Floyd's death on the streets, uh, you know, with impunity. You know, how you kill someone by kneeling on their neck, I don't know. But that happened. And that was a form of oppression. It was a power play by a man who had a lot of power because of the uniform he wore. Now, a lot of people who wear that uniform are really great people. But power is a dangerous thing in the wrong hands. And that's what Jesus wants us to know. If you have power, be really, really careful what you do with it. Because you can break the world you live in. I don't even have to go that far. I met, a, I met two sisters this summer. I, I love them dearly, Virgie and Anita. I met them in Mallory, which is a small town in West Virginia, in Logan County. And we were working on their house. And the house that they lived in had been a coal house. It was owned by the coal company, so it was originally built minimally. 
because the coal company didn't really care about their workers. They just had to provide them a place to live and uh, pay them in something other than American currency, pay them in scrip. So the only place they could use the money was in the company stow. And so uh, Virgie and Anita were proud to tell me how both their parents had ultimately died as a as a uh, offshoot of the coal mines. The dad, because he had worked in the coal mines, and the mom, because every day she washed and cleaned the dad's clothes when he brought him home, so the coal dust that was on his clothes had also entered her lungs. And so, now, the coal company owners got rich off of all of that. And the miners were very proud of the hard work they did. Now the problem is that we demonized everything about coal. Those who know that coal does damage to our environment, instead of having a conversation, we demonized everything to do with coal, including men and women who work really hard in holes in the ground to produce coal for the rest of us. Persecution is all about demonizing someone else to make yourself feel better, to make yourself more strong. Do you know in the 1500s, white people invented whiteness so that we could be in charge? Everybody else was other than us. That's why there's still so much division in our world today. We could be divided about all sorts of things, but that's a reason that we have divided. We demonized others, whoever else was other, indigenous people, people of color, people of culture all around us. I know if you're white, you get tired of hearing about it, but get over it. Get some tougher skin. We've asked our sisters and siblings and brothers to do that over the last 500 years. You and I can do it too. Because persecution is wrong, demonizing any other human being is wrong, because then I feel it's okay to do what I want to do, no matter what, to those others, because they're not me. How blessed are you if you are persecuted, though, for what is right? Because then you know the kingdom of heaven. What is right? What is righteousness? What is right is to be and recognize our relationship to one another and to the world in which we live and to God. But I don't know how we expect each other to recognize that if we all spend our time demonizing ourselves and the other. Republicans demonize Democrats, and these days it's horrible. And Democrats demonize Republicans, and it's horrible. <laughs> and let me tell you, everyone seems to be horrible if you're on another side. Everybody is horrible over there, but look at us over here. For us, righteousness is making sure everyone has a voice. And that voice is heard For a while, I thought we were really hearing the voice of George Floyd, who died 
on that street. But we have very short memories, and we forget. We forget. We can't give up easily as the people of faith. And maybe that's why Jesus saved this for the last of the Beatitudes. Because it's the hardest work. I thought being a peacemaker was pretty hard. I thought, you know, uh, being merciful might be pretty hard. I, I thought being pure of heart was going to be really wicked hard, especially when I thought it was all about morality. I thought knowing that I was poor was going to be really hard. That grieving or being sorrowful was going to be really hard. But you know what it is? Being persecuted for doing what's right, for giving voice to the other that everyone else wants to take away their voice. That's hard work. Because people don't like that. You know, this is going to be one of my unpopular sermons. I can just tell you right now, I know, it's unpopular. It's unpopular with me. I would much rather have done the intellectual sermon I had all ready for you this week. Righteousness is these three things. Do that. And you'll get persecuted, but that's okay, because heaven is great dance in heaven. But I didn't get to say that. And I don't know that I'm always right. I know you think I probably think I am. I don't. I am often thankful that I have not experienced the persecution that many of my siblings have. But that doesn't give me a right to bask in my lack of persecution. I have to work. You know, one of my favorite authors, um, Ibram X. Kendi, talks about it's not enough to not be racist, that you need to be anti-racist, that you need to make practices in your life that stand against the oppression of anyone else. You know, choose how you spend your money wisely. Choose how you spend your time wisely. Choose how you invest yourself wisely. And think about someone besides yourself. Think about people of culture. Think about your poorer neighbor. Think about the environment. Think about the ways you can encounter others that let them be seen and heard. Now see, that's something I ought to be willing to be persecuted for. For giving voice to those who are voiceless. So in spite of the fact that this is going to be my least popular sermon of the last 30 years at St. James, perhaps, uh, I can't not say what I said, at least for me. And I hope you receive it in the way I intended it. I don't have all the answers, but I do know a God who wants me to love in the face of all challenges and to overcome injustice with love. And it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's making sure families of coal miners and coal miners are heard. People of culture and color are heard. People who are uh, uh, 
who, who understand their gender, gender identity differently than I do, people whose uh, sexual orientation is different than mine is. I need to hear all of those voices and know God loves you. Because what do I say? What has God taught me to say? You and I are infinitely precious and unconditionally loved for the gift you already are right now. You are infinitely precious and unconditionally loved for the gift you already are right now. And if you are, and if you live from a place of your own preciousness and lovedness as the gift you are in this world, the world will change because you'll see the same thing in the other. And you won't treat them like the other You'll treat them like yourself. Well, there we go. It's, it's time to pray. I am so very, very thankful to just be alive on this day. I'm thankful for all of you who've gathered in person and those of you who are watching online whenever you're watching. I'm thankful for the opportunity to do this work even when it's hard. I am thankful today because two of the folks who are part of our congregation, it's been taken a while, it's a process in immigration, but received their green card this week. And that's... Um, that's exciting. That's exciting. I am, I'm thankful that each of you is out in the world in your own way, loving this world we live in. I don't want to just make us. Oh, well, thanks for that report. Um, see, this is. This is why you have a team. That's why you have a team. And we will, I want us to lift up. Um, if, if you didn't know, uh, Gingy is, uh, is pregnant, and there's a new person who's going to be among us. Uh, and Gingy's being induced this week. So uh, I want us to be praying for her and for the new little person uh, in in this very exciting time. Man, I just feel full of gratitude today. Um, let me see if I can think of something really harsh to call out or something in the prayer, but uh, I just, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of good things. I do worry about the division in our world. I do worry about the ongoing persecution. And I do pray that we will love in such a way that we will break the back of persecution. Not the persecutors, but the persecution that happens. Because God loves the persecutors. I don't get it. God and I have this conversation. But God loves the persecutors. So we're going to pray uh, for presence, for thanks, uh, 
uh, you know, for strength and healing and courage for Jinji and, uh, and our new little friend uh, and family member. Uh, and we're going to pray for the world we live in. And we're going to help carry the heaviness that is our world, trusting that God will help us. God will help us. So we begin in a moment of silent prayer. I'll pray out loud for us, and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together, a version of which will be on the screen. Please pray whatever version you want to, in whatever language you know it in, and that's all good. Uh, because you're not praying to me, so I don't even have to understand what you're saying. You're praying to God, and God understands everything, especially as it relates to love. So we will begin in a moment of silent prayer together. Here we are, your people. And we're here wherever we are, whether it's this space or whatever space that we're watching this on. Here you are. And we just want to thank you right up front for being where we are. And if we've been able to be in this moment, actually be aware of and present for this moment, we're thankful for the awareness you've given us. We're thankful for the spirit you've given us. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, and the way he inspired us by showing what you're like, what love looks like in person, so that we could maybe look a little bit like it ourselves. We know the path is challenging. We read the Beatitudes. We've spent eight weeks talking about those things. And that's maybe not even the most challenging part of it all. But it sounds pretty challenging. But we know that even though we face challenges in life, we're never alone in those challenges. You protect us from nothing and sustain us in everything. You carry us through the worst and the best moments, as well as the most mediocre, mundane, everyday moments we have. Every moment, there you are, sustaining us. Thanks. As we come before you this morning, we pray, oh God, that whatever way we can do something to bring more righteousness into the world, more right relationship with each other, with you, and with the world in which we live, that you'd give us courage and fortitude to stand up and do it. Give us love, even more than that, that we could pour it out like a fountain everywhere we go. We want to be your people all the time. We know we're going to trip up. But even in our tripping, you love us. 
even in our flaws, you love us, even in our broken woundedness, in our hiding and retreating sometimes, you love us. Be especially present this week with Gingy and the new little person, the new life that will come among us, really has already come among us, but that will be born. Be present. Help each of us to reflect what it looks like to be the children of God so that you can be proud of us. Because you love us no matter what. But we'd like to do that love justice in our every breath and action and thought. We pray for our neighbors here on the West End and around the world, but especially here on the West End where we are. We pray for those who will come to visit us tomorrow night, the West End Food Pantry. We pray for all those cute little people, and maybe not so little, that will be out trick-or-treating tomorrow, and maybe some today, I don't know. But as they get out there, may they find safety and be careful, uh, sustain and strengthen us as a community of faith, and let us be your light here in the West End and wherever we shine to. We ask all of this in Jesus' holy name through the power of his spirit, and we pray now the prayer he modeled for us, saying, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.